Let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. I've got too many papers up here. Matthew chapter 5. We're going through this idea of broken blessings. This idea that at some point we all realize that we're broken. Much like, much like that bowl up there was broken at one time. And then God, through His mercy, His grace, His wisdom, His love, His compassion that He has for us, begins to f- put our pieces of the bowl back together. And rather than put super glue in there, He starts, ed- he starts um, molding, uh, putting us back together with ribbons of gold so that we are more valuable that we are more beautiful after our brokenness than we are before. We talked about this in the Dark Nights of the Soul class that we just finished this morning. And there's this idea that not only does that cup or that bowl represent um, a wholeness and a completeness of Christ putting us back together and we're more beautiful than we were before, but now we begin to see our scars Others can see our scars, and they can see evidence of God working in our lives. Not only that, but now that bowl, those pieces that could not hold water, now can hold water again. And just imagine your cup or your bowl now full of water, and you see others who are broken, maybe in a very similar situation. And you see God beginning to put them back together. And now you could come alongside and start pouring some of your water into their bowl. Start pouring, that is a metaphor, of course, we're pouring our lives into their lives and comforting them and coming to, to a, a point of aid and in the midst of their distress. Which gets right to the next beatitude. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. The Beatitudes are a well-worn path on a never-ending spiritual quest. There is a deep echo inside each of our hearts that draws us to have a desire to connect with God, whether we know that or not. That is why the Beatitudes are so timeless and so instructional. They paint a vivid picture of what life looks like and its internal benefits or eternal benefits, when you connect with God and follow the master. Mercy is rooted in God's goodness and is displayed to those in misery and distress, whether that be spiritual, emotional, physical, or mental distress. And we only learn how to be truly merciful when we hunger and thirst for righteousness. As God satisfies that hunger we begin to see the world more through his eyes than ours. I want to take a pause for just a moment. We've hit on this a couple times, and Roger did an excellent job near the end of the sermon last week to discover the, to talk about this order that we find here in the Beatitudes. Um, and what I discovered with this, this was an order of discipleship. When I first came to Christ at age 29... I had never um, been in church before with the exception of a funeral and a wedding. I knew that there was a God out there. I wasn't an atheist. I just didn't know anything about him. I knew the word Jesus, but I didn't know anything about the guy. 
I knew, I thought Genesis was a rock band, <laughs> right? I had no idea that it was the first book of the Bible. I mean, that's just where I was, right? So I come to, I come to Jesus, and one of a dear saint, as I was going to Bible study after Bible study, I think at one point I was in four or five Bible studies a week because I just, I didn't, I didn't know what I didn't know. And he pointed out, he came part me to the Beatitudes, and he pointed this out to me. He said, David, he goes, this is actually a, um, a path to discipleship. This is a path to get to know God better, the Beatitudes. He said, watch this, and read with me. He said, you know, when you're, when you're poor in spirit, blessed or fortunate are those who are poor in spirit. Well, I said, well, what does that mean? He said, poor in spirit means that you recognize that you have to have a dependence upon God, that you can't do this yourself. Okay, yeah, that's me. Right then and there, that was me. For there shall be the kingdom of heaven. Oh. And then once I recognized that I had a dependence upon God, I started reflecting back on my life. And blessed are those who mourn, so for they shall be comforted. And that mourning was a godly sorrow is what he explained to me. You're going to begin to take an inventory of your life, and you're going to go back, and you're going to be going, oh, my gosh, yeah, I did that, and I did that, and I did that. Oh, I buried that away, away in my mind, in the dark recesses of my mind, and now it's being brought to light. Oh, I've got to deal with that. I went through about a nine-month period of repentance. I went through, and I tried to contact as many different people as I could contact over the past 14, 15 years of my life, people I had hurt, sometimes unintentionally, and I just didn't know. Other times, very intentionally. <laughs> And I, and I had to work through that. But there was that godly sorrow that was brought upon me. And that produced a humility because I recognized, oh my gosh, I'm not as, this hot shot that I thought I was. Which then, once I got to that place of humility, and he described this, he goes, once you get to that place of humility, now you're ready for righteousness. Now you're ready for God's word to be poured into your life. Now, because now you're hungry and you're thirsty for getting away from your old life and bringing the new life in. He said, that's the reason why you're in Bible studies four or five times a week. That's the reason why you're reading Scripture like a madman. It's because you've never had this. You've been starved your entire life. You're hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And you know the strange thing? I was satisfied. After intense, intense reading and Bible studies, and I'm still not fully satisfied, but man, I'm a lot more satisfied. I'm full. And then he said, something miraculous is going to happen. When you get into this and you start reading God's word in his scripture, and he starts satisfying you, you're going to start to look through, look at the world through his eyes rather than yours. And you're going to become Merciful. Because that's who he is. And once you become merciful, you, it's going to drive you to a purity of heart. You're going to want to aspire to be holy as he is holy. Which then is going to produce a peacemaking effect in your life. You're going to be the guy who's going to want to help solve problems and relieve tensions and be that peacemaker. And because you do all those things, people are going to come after you. They're going to impugn you. 
Because now you're taking more and more and more of the righteousness of God on you. And what does the world not like? The righteousness of God. So just be prepared for that. And I have to tell you that as I've lived my life, I keep coming back to this and this is what I see. What is the result? Once God satisfies that hunger and thirst and we begin to see the world through his eyes rather than ours, mercy replaces cruelty. Mercy replaces indifference. Mercy replaces crassness. Mercy replaces capriciousness. That's a big SAT word that just means improper justice. A great example of that would be the uh, dictator of North Korea. There was one time that he thought that one of his generals was betraying him. And so he just found him guilty, just like that. He put him on a tarmac at an Air Force base and then commanded the army, which was an army unit, which was like 70 miles away. He gave this army unit, which is an artillery unit, coordinates. I want you to shoot an artillery shell from here to that coordinate. Guess what that coordinate was? His general. That's capricious. That's the, um, mercy replaces that. Mercy replaces injustice. It replaces alienation. It replaces retribution. It replaces violence. It replaces domination. If mercy is that powerful, then how do we get there? First, believe that God is good and merciful. If we get, get that first, there we go. This comes out of a, a story of Lot right before Sodom and, and Gomorrah were pulverized. It says, but he lingered, meaning Lot. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand. Why? Because the Lord was being merciful to him. And they brought him outside and, and set him outside the city. Second slide. How do we believe that God is good and merciful? In Deuteronomy 4.31, For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with you that your fathers, uh, that he swore to them. Now I want to rest on this for just a moment. This idea, he does not forget the covenant, that's the promise that he has made to us. That's the reason why he is merciful, because he's never going to go back on that promise. In, in our terms, if, in the church in the, in the, today, that promise is the New Testament. It's the new covenant. That Jesus has come, that he has sent his one and only son to die for our sins. That's the promise. And because of that promise, and because he has done that, he is going to be merciful to us. He's not going to forget us. He's not going to forsake us. And we go to the next one. We find this in Psalms. For the Lord is gracious and merciful. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. 
This is who God claims himself to be. And there is yet to be any text out there or any philosophy out there that has been able to take this down. There have been many attempts. There have been many people who have thought that they have. But when we rest in the authority of Scripture and we see the authority of the Scripture as being true, and then we begin to compare that with our lives, and we see through Scripture all the ways that He has been merciful to other people. Because you have to remember that mercy, um, He doesn't have to be merciful to us. Remember Adam and Eve? They had everything just perfect, and they blew it. And at that point, God could have just said, okay, I'm done with you. And why would he say something like that? Number one, he can't allow brokenness, that is sin, into his presence. And if he wants to be with us forever and ever and ever, and we're sinful people and we've done sinful things, then we can't be with him. We actually deserve his judgment. So what's going to trump his judgment? His mercy, his love. Because he wants to be with us forever and ever because he has created in, in us, he has created us in his likeness and image. He has sent his one and only son to die on our behalf. God so loved the world that he sent his only son. This is the basis of his mercy. If we believe that God is good and merciful, secondly, we need to believe that he created a way to bring us out of spiritual misery and distress. Now, in the Old Testament, how did he do that? If Christ wasn't there, how did he do that? He established this, this, uh, this piece of furniture called the mercy seat. In some translations, it's known as the atonement cover. It was simply a place, if you remember, there, there, there was the temple of God. And through the temple of God, they, they had these different sections. And the mercy seat sat in what was called the Holy of Holies. It was the only place that only one person could go into only once a year. And that was the high priest. This is where God resided on earth, was above the mercy seat. The high priest, after they would sacrifice the perfect bull or goat or pigeon or whatever that we as people could bring to atone for our sins, and they were perfect lambs, they were perfect goats, they were perfect bulls, perfect pigeons, whatever you could afford, he would take, the high priest then would take that blood and walk back into that very sacred place where God resided, the only place where he could be, and he would sprinkle that blood on the mercy seat to atone for the people's sins. The cross, when Jesus came, has become our mercy seat or our atonement cover. Rather than going once a year and having to atone for our sins and buy a pigeon or a dove or a goat or a lamb and have it slaughtered there at the temple and have the blood sprinkled on the mercy seat, Christ did that once and for all for us. He was the perfect lamb of God. 
This is the site of mercy and also the site of justice. This is the cross is where justice and mercy meet. God was merciful because he so loved the world. God was just because he had to figure out a way to exact his justice out. Somebody had to pay the penalty for us. That was his son. Isn't that beautiful? How mercy and justice can come together on one person, on one event, on a simple cross. In Luke uh, 18.13, do we have that? But the tax collector, remember in the New Testament times, a tax collector was seen as a filthy animal. I mean, really, really filthy. Because he, would, he was, uh, most of these people in Jerusalem were Jews hired by the Roman government to extract taxes on behalf of Caesar. Regardless of your income, you had to pay the tax. And as a little tip, they would extract a little extra for themselves. They were despised people during that time. The tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but he beat on his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He knew exactly where he stood when Jesus was there. And so in the next one, by by God's grace, and his, that's it, okay. By God's grace and his mercy, as Paul explains in the second chapter of Ephesians, this beautiful passage. He's going on uh, to, the, to the Ephesians church, helping them understand their spiritual blessings in Christ, helping them understand who God was and how this grace by faith thing really works. He says this. Um, he says, you were dead in, your tr- in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of power of the air, the spirit that is now the work of the sons of disobedience. Among you, we once lived the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body, the mind, and we were uh, by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, rich in mercy, because of his great love, which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You see, when we believe that God is good and merciful, when we believe that he he created a way to bring us out of our spiritual misery and distress, we come alive. Our hearts become awakened. Our consciences are quickened. And we think of the possibilities of what our lives could look like. Reconciled. When we believe that these two things have occurred, we also believe that he is present and active in our life. That's the third thing, that he's present and active. And we recognize that all too well. There's a high priest who's sitting next to his father who intercedes on our behalf when we pray. We know that Jesus is with us particularly during the most difficult seasons of our life. 
He just shows up. Whether in Carrie Underwood's song, Jesus Take the Wheel, or in something, as I've mentioned to the people at Morningside over and over, there was this 95-year-old gal who was a part of our congregation. She had valve replacement surgery in her heart. She was in rehab for a long time. She had this window, one window that she could look out of her room. And every day around 2 o'clock, her favorite bird would show up and sit on a branch so she could see it. And I was in there one day when this bird did that, and she took her eyes off of me and went over to the bird, and she smiled. And I said, what are you looking at? She goes, you see that bird over there? Yeah, that's my favorite type of bird. And I've never told anybody that. And at 2 o'clock every day, this little birdie comes and sits on this branch so I could see it. I said, so what's that mean to you? She said, I believe that is God's way telling me that he is with me right now. Wow. He is present in our lives. If he's present in our lives, the fourth thing is that we need to believe that we need to imitate God. <clears throat> you mean me? Are you serious? Relax just a little bit. Because he's not going to allow us to be all-powerful and all-knowing. But I think he does expect us to be loving, gracious, compassionate, truthful, wise. Do you think that he, he calls us to be merciful? There's a passage also in Ephesians as Paul is working through the, uh, and trying to help the Ephesians church learn how to become more Christ-like. He says, listen to this. He, this comes out of verse 42 of uh, chapter 4. He says, be kind-hearted to one another. Now he's speaking to the church. Church of Ephesus. You all in this room, be kind to one another. Be tender-hearted. Forgive one another. As God in Christ has forgiven you. Therefore... Be imitators of God as beloved children. Do you see how when we begin to mirror these behaviors, and it's not because we have to do them in some legalistic way, it's because of the love of Christ. It's because of the love of the Father who has given us a pathway to be reconnected to Him so we can be with Him forever and ever and ever. And we give thanks and honor and glory for that very fact that he loved us so much that he was willing to allow his one and only son to be sacrificed on our behalf. As Christ was kind to you, be kind to one another. As Christ was tenderhearted towards you, be tenderhearted towards the other. As Christ has forgiven you, Forgive one another. Or God in Christ has forgive each other. Do you see how when we start to hunger and thirst for righteousness and we begin to understand Scripture, how suddenly we begin to begin looking through the world through His eyes rather than ours? And then suddenly that allows us to become more merciful because we see the great misery and distress that the people are around us are in, including ourselves. 
So a person who is consistently touched by God's goodness and possessed by his divine love will be concerned for the welfare of others, particularly those in misery and distress, be it spiritual, emotional, physical, or mental. The more I know God's mercy, here's the application. The more that I know of God's mercy, the more merciful you will become. And, the more, and you will move from being callous to tender, from being cruel to compassion, from being indifferent to being involved. The more I flee sin or the more we flee sin, the more merciful we or I become because the stain of sin isn't as dark. It's, it's been erased. Now, I'm going to... Y'all heard the, uh, the movie Schindler's List, right? Have, I would assume most of you who have watched that movie. Those who haven't, it was a story of a, um, of a German back in World War II who was a capitalist. He was, he was a moneymaker, and he became a part... He, he joined the Nazi Party exclusively so that he could get contracts from the Nazi Party so he could make armaments for the Nazi army. Now, in order to um, produce all of that, he um, chose... Uh, to hire Jews who were in concentration camps. They would haul them out of the concentration camps and in, into this plant and did, they would do their work and then they would put them back into the concentration camps. Oscar Schindler started to show that he cared about his Jewish laborers as human beings when he got a sub-camp constructed on the factory premises in 1943. Why would he do that? Before, the SS guards would march them from the Plazo camp, which was controlled by the SS, uh, where they lived, uh, where they would be marched back and forth to the factory uh, each day. Though uh, Schindler told officials he wanted them closer so they could work more, what he was really wanting them, he really wanted to improve their quality of life, which also benefited his bottom line. This is a quote from one of the people that he had saved. He said, it was the first major gesture he made in which he was really trying to help and, have, uh, and allow us to have a little better life. The food was better. The males and females weren't separated any longer. And he didn't let the SS guards into the camp. They could stay in the watchtowers, but he wouldn't let them come in. He also remembers making shells for ammunition. And, he, and this gal felt like Schindler took good care of them. He'd smile and ask, how are you doing? And he would pat you on your head. I remember I had pneumonia one time, and, he, and I stayed in the clinic for three days. If I had gotten sick in Plazau, they would have killed me. If you stayed in the clinic there for more than one day, they would shoot you. That didn't happen at Oscar Schindler's factory. She also recalls a moment when she had trouble operating a machine to the point that it stopped working properly. I was crying because I was so scared. The foreman accused me of sabotage. Schindler walked up and said, hey, this small girl can't handle that machine and nobody but a man should be using that machine. I was convinced that he had, sent, that he had been sent from heaven. Oscar Schindler knew that what the Nazis were doing were wrong. He was fleeing sin. But in the midst of that, he figured out a way to employ Jews, treat them kindly. And at near the end of the war, he 
all of the money that he had made off of the war, he started buying back Jews one at a time. Came to 1,098 Jews he was able to buy back. And he was able to have them shift safely out of the, out of the Nazi control uh, because the Nazis near the end of the war, when they knew it was over, they were absolutely annihilating everyone who was in the concentration camps and in these work camps. And I firmly believe that he saw evil in all of this. And so the more that he fled sin, the more merciful he become. The same would be true for us. The more I see that I'm united with Christ, the better I'm able to hear cries of mercy. We've all heard of the Hammurabi Code, right? An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, true justice. Well, listen to what James writes. Um, during the time that the New Testament was written, and I'll get into this in just a minute, mercy was not a virtue. Mercy was seen as, as something to be despised. It was all justice all the time, particularly with the Romans. And so if you were merciful, you were seen as weak-minded. There was a defect, a character defect in you. So in this, James writes in 2.13, For judgment without mercy... To one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. That only happens when we're united with Christ. That we see that we can be able to do that. And the more that I see the heart of God, the more I'm uh, motivated to fight for those who can't fight for themselves. Have you all heard of the, um, the uh, book by Charles Dickens, the great book, uh, Adventures of an Oliver Twist? It was written in 1837. Um, uh, Charles Dickens was a great Christian author who wrote terrific fiction. Um, he, and he was a, a stern social critic of London society. And this is where all of his novels came out of. In 1834, the, uh, the parliament passed a, a, a law for, uh, about poor people. And so they get, began to gather all the poor people into these things that they would call workhouses. And this is where Adventures of Oliver Twist, the, the, the primary, most of the story was, uh, was um, written from this perspective. There was a, a gentleman there who worked for the church. These workhouses were organized by churches just like us in coordination with other churches, almost like a Salvation Army type thing. And then they would hire people to mind over the poor people in these workhouses and, and they would do these menial tasks and, and get paid very, very little money. Well, the main care, one, of the, one of the characters in the book, his name is Mr. Brumble. Mr. Bumble, I'm sorry. And he was a very, very, very cruel man who happened to be a deacon of the church, which in, in Dickens' own ironic way, um, uh, brings levity to a situation. But here's what Mr. Bumble said one day about Oliver Twist, a small child and all the other children and all the people in the workhouse. He says, we have paupers to do with soul or... What do uh, paupers have to do with soul or spirit or either? It's quite enough. We let them have bodies. Now... Dickens is obviously making a critique of that, correct? He's obviously saying that's wrong. 
That's wrong. And, and then we hear the, 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 the ideas of, of kids, particularly high school kids and junior highs, uh, being bullied all the time. There was a song written by an alternative rock band a few years ago named Shine Down. Here's a verse from it. Listen to this. It is 8 a.m., this hell I am in. Seem I've crossed the line again for being nothing more than who I am. So break my bones, throw your stones. We all know life ain't fair but there's more of us, we're everywhere. You see, when we begin to see through the eyes of God, humanity, and our city, we begin to see, we begin, our hearts grow tender, we become more merciful, and through that mercy, we become motivated to stand up for the Oliver Twist. We begin to stand up for those who are bullied. We begin to stand up for those who are... Uh, being treated poorly. We begin to stand up for those who can't stand up for themselves. And this is one of the most ironic things, not ironic things, but um, in the history of Christianity that um, this gentleman had written a while ago. Listen to this contrast. And this is the reason why the church is so important. I'm talking about us. In contrast, in the pagan world, especially among the philosophers, mercy was regarded as a character defect and a, uh, as a pathological emotion because mercy involved providing unearned help or relief. It is contrary to justice. Mercy, indeed, is not governed by reason at all. Humans must learn to curb the impulse. The cry of the undeserved for mercy must go unanswered. Pity was a defect character, or a defect of character, worthy of the wise and inexcusable only to those who have not yet grown up. A third century bishop remarked, there's nothing more remarkable cherishing merely of our own people with the due attention to love. Thus the good was done to all men, not merely to the household of faith. And so, as Christians, as we think, what can we do for the city? How can we impact the city? This vehicle of mercy is huge. It melts down all of the other stuff. If we simply love people, are gracious to them, are merciful to them, are kind-hearted, are tender towards us, and then we take that out, this type of mercy was the type of mercy that propelled the Christian faith from going from 120 people in a room to 300 years later being adopted by the Roman Empire as the official religion of the Roman Empire. And there was approximately 60% of all Roman citizens were Christians. Largely due on the, on the idea of mercy. So... Fortunate are those who are merciful, for they will receive mercy. Let us pray. Father, as we come to you, we are grateful for all that you have done in our lives. We would ask that you would deeply imprint this upon our hearts, that if we're not convicted, that we are now convicted, and if we are convicted, that it would inspire us to live out your will 
in this world. God, allow us to see that world through your eyes. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.